The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been considering from different books of the Bible the subject of prayer, God-centered prayer. We wish that all prayer was God-centered. It isn't. A great deal of it is me-centered. We've tried to distinguish what that means in different texts. We come to a strange passage, perhaps, for some of you today in Genesis chapter 32, a passage where a man by the name of Jacob prayed He was in crisis, he was in danger, he was afraid, and he prayed. In fact, in Genesis 32, I'm not reading all of it, but verse 9 following has the prayer of Jacob, which is the first recorded prayer after Jacob has has been told about for several previous chapters in uh, Genesis. It's the first time a prayer of his is recorded. I will give you some background in the message here about his particular situation, but quickly, he had been away from his home in Canaan for 20 years. He had become a rich man. He did some of this by tricking people, lying, uh, acts of chicanery, and uh, he felt now that God was calling him back home. But there was a problem, and that problem was the 20-year absence he'd had from his brother Esau, who had told him when Jacob left, that he would kill him if he ever saw him again. So it's been reported to Jacob that his brother is coming out to greet him as he rides home with 400 men. And I would suggest you don't bring 400 men if your intentions are friendly. Jacob knows that. He prays in Genesis 32, 9 and following, and then he finds himself in this situation. I'll give you some more background in a few minutes. But we read in verse 22 and following. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, that's a river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. 
The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's holy word. Maybe you know the kind of person who rather bulldozes their way through life by shrewd use of nerve and wits and often cheating along the way somehow. They have a natural boldness that others lack. They're survivors. They get things done. Faced with a crisis or a challenge, they scheme their way through or plow through with cunning and determination. People like this sometimes are CEOs of great companies that make progress and great profits. Other times they go into political office. They get things done while other people sit and scratch their heads and wonder what to do. Sadly, it doesn't always mean that the actions of these folks are legal or ethical. Well, meet Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of the nation of Israel, one of the most complex characters in the whole Bible. Jacob was a conniver, a thief, family black sheep, shrewd businessman, all rolled up in one. And remarkably, in the passage before us, he became a much humbled man of God, humbled for the rest of his life. Genesis 32 shows Jacob in the crisis of his spiritual life, his very strange and unique wrestling match with what we believe is the angel of God is a premier mystery in the Old Testament. Now, most of us, we try to picture God in a comprehensive way, and many people think of God as sort of a benign father figure, not someone who would ever attack you. Who imagines the true God sending his messenger to actually attack and fight with someone, wrestling with the person to overcome their doubts and their sin until they confess what they are like. But that's exactly what we have here. Jacob met God as his adversary, and then he surrendered to God as his Savior. I would call this Jacob's epic conversion. Commentators wrestle over that. Some don't want to say that. They say he was a godly man before this, despite a lot of his unethical behavior. I think it comes better to see this as a conversion experience. When all his plotting and his use of his wits and his conniving come to an end, and he clings to God and clings hard for the first time ever, maybe, just maybe, some of you can even see yourselves in this ancient narrative and see the Lord dealing with you in this hard way that he dealt with Jacob. We need some background on this, so I'll fill in more than I did a moment ago so you'll grasp the situation better. If a book had been written about Jacob's life up to this point, the biography would probably be titled Grasping God's Benefits by Your Own Devices. If you go back to Genesis 25, you see the birth of Jacob and his twin brother, Esau, born to Rebekah and Isaac. And Genesis 25, 22 says the children struggled within their mother. They were already fighting. 
Now, my wife bore twins, and we saw a fair amount of struggling between them along life's way as they grew into manhood. I don't think she had them struggling within her womb. But here they are in 2526 reports that when they were born, Jacob was the second to arrive, but his hand was grasping Esau's heel as he was born. And the parents took that as a sign or signification of what would be happening in their lives thereafter. They were locked in supremacy for the blessing of God and the primacy of leadership in their family for their whole lives, basically. Now, maybe you feel sorry for Esau because the younger brother kept beating him out of things, but you really can't be too sorry for him because Esau was a careless man who cared little for the blessing of God. You remember that story that happened, true event that happened when Esau came in exhausted from a day of hunting out in the fields and his brother Jacob had cooked up some stew and Esau said, give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, I'll give it to you if you confer your blessing as the firstborn upon me. And Esau thought nothing of that, thought, all right, fine. That's worth a bowl of stew. You've got it. That's all Esau cared for the things of God. There was that later occasion in Genesis 27 when Jacob and his mother, of all people, conspired to deceive her husband, Isaac, Jacob's father, who was nearly blind at that stage. And you remember perhaps how they tricked him into thinking Jacob was Esau and a further blessing was put upon Jacob that belonged to the older brother. The father was tricked. Esau came in and discovered what had happened yet again and made murderous threats. And so it was at that point that Jacob departed from his parents' home and from Esau. Twenty years passed in which he worked for his uncle Laban, his mother's brother in another land, the land of Haran. And Uncle Laban was a great instructor in how to live and get your way through life. He was a bigger thief and a liar and a trickster than Jacob was. And he delighted in cheating Jacob. You remember Jacob loved his daughter Rachel and wanted her as his wife. And Laban said, fine, work for me seven years, you have her. And what Jacob ended up with was Leah in the dark of the tent on the wedding night. And then he had to work another seven years for Rachel. But he had the last laugh, tricking Laban out of some of his best animals and departed from Laban as a rich man, rich in flocks and herds. And now he believed God had called him to go home again to Canaan. And he knew that this meant facing his brother Esau, who had threatened him, said he would kill him if he ever saw him again. Well, God had earlier given Jacob this promise in Genesis 28:15. The Lord God said to Jacob, this man with a pretty spotty record, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. And it may disturb you a little bit to think that God decided to use a man with this kind of character, his low morals and ethics. But Esau was certainly no hero. He didn't have serious regard for the things of God. And God does work through unlikely rascals sometimes. I remind you of a man who died five years ago whose name is familiar to many of you, Chuck Colson. Chuck was a former Marine and an attorney hired by President Nixon for special services. And those old enough to remember Watergate can remember Chuck Colson was at the center of all the dirty tricks Everything illegal going on to cover up 
acts that were happening that shouldn't have been happening in the high office of the president. And when Nixon went down, Colson went down too. He went to prison, spent some time there, and uh, was transformed by faith in Christ. I believe that happened actually before he went to prison. And the critics had a field day. Oh, Colson has got jailhouse religion. You know, oh boy, you know, what, what won't he do for, to get off or make himself look good? But when Chuck Colson left prison, he also entered into prison ministry that he founded and led for almost four decades before he died five years ago. Chuck Colson's conversion was real. It was as real as it could be. A rogue and a rascal who made a great exhibit for the transforming grace of God, just as Jacob did in his own time. God works in making over people like the patriarch Jacob and Chuck Colson and you and me. He almost loves to start with somebody like this so that the finished product can be undeniably his work. Remember what the great song says, Amazing Grace that saved what? A wretch like me. God loves wretches who know that they're wretches. And that's exactly what happened to Jacob this night. Well, grasping personal gain by his own devices was the first stage of the story. But now we go to our text, Genesis 32, 22, and read here about God's violent assault of grace upon this man. Jacob had heard already in, in this chapter that Esau was coming with 400 men. I wouldn't interpret that 400 men were coming to give me a gracious welcome. I don't think you would either. He split up his family and his herds into several groups, probably thinking, well, maybe Esau will find one group, but he won't find the other. He won't get all my people. And in 32.7, we read that he was greatly afraid and distressed. He prayed for the first recorded time in Genesis, as I said, in Genesis 32.9 and following, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, and so on. He prays. He adores God. He confesses sin. He gives thanks, and he made supplication. Remember that ACTS we talked about? It's perfectly exhibited in his prayer. And he finally, his supplication was, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. He was humbled before God, and he was praying. He had tried everything he knew how to do. Now he was turning in a humble way to the Lord. Then he positioned himself for this strange scene. He stayed alone by the camp alongside the river called Jabbok. And strangely, without any introduction, the text launches us with this word, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Wouldn't you be terrified if you went out your, let's say last night on such a windy night, you heard something perhaps out in your backyard and you went out the door, there was no light out there, and all of a sudden from the dark a hand grabbed you and threw you to the ground? You'd certainly be pretty alarmed. There certainly was no street lights or anything to illumine this scene where Jacob was. Somebody seized him. Who was it? An assassin from Esau, perhaps? Who knew? But Jacob fought with this unknown intruder with all his might. We are left to interpret who this was. It was a real person. This wasn't a dream. 
the injury he had at the end of this thing certainly wasn't something he imagined. The Lord God, we're given to understand, sent a wrestler in the form of flesh and blood that many interpreters have understood a messenger from God or even an angel of God, the angel of the Lord. And this wrestling match was physical, but it was also spiritual as the man tried to conquer this attacker. And then far into the fight, as it was almost daybreak, as they had thrown each other down and charged each other and twisted and turned and wrestled and sweated, the bout went on, and finally, when Jacob wouldn't withdraw, the man asked for him to let him withdraw because the dawn was coming, implication that he didn't want him to, Jacob to see him. The stranger, with one stroke, dislocated Jacob's hip. And for the first time, this great deceiver was helpless. He couldn't win on his own strength or his own trickery anymore. This called to my mind a scene in a movie some of you probably have seen, a role by Russell Crowe in a movie called The Cinderella Man, where Russell Crowe portrays a real-life person from the 1930s in our country, the fighter James Braddock, a man who had a very low-luster career as a fighter, didn't, hadn't accomplished too much. But in 1935, the heavyweight champion, Max Baer, needed a fight, and he needed to fight somebody that his handlers wanted to be an easy match for him. James Braddock needed the money and was glad to be asked to fight Max Bear, even though Max Bear had killed a man in the ring with his fists. It was an overmatch. Braddock was thought by everybody to have no chance. They fought 15 rounds, slugging it out, desperately by the end clinging to one another, both so exhausted that if one fell, he would take the other one down with him. And Braddock was declared the winner on points. I picture that final scene in the 15th round of that fight as being where these two were, just holding on for dear life to the other. But then I see that in the third place, Genesis 32 tells us about new life for a spiritually broken believer. Alone with God here, his resume wouldn't do anything for him. His rich herds wouldn't do anything for him. His four wives wouldn't help him any. His 11 children couldn't help him out. Jacob was physically helpless, but he would not quit when he said to this wrestling representative of God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That was a life-changing moment. As his life turned 180 degrees, he wanted now a blessing that only God could bestow. He was too lame to walk, but he wasn't a loser. He was clinging with tenacity to the one person who could bestow a blessing on his life. Martin Luther commented on this passage. Here's what Luther said. This mystery assailant in the night, Luther said, was the Lord Jesus Christ come to wrestle for the souls of men. Another commentator said this, I quote him, As God fights against our sin with his left hand, so does he supply us with strength and uphold us by his right hand. He grants us the victory of faith so that we even seem to overcome when we are most defeated. But in fact, we are only claiming his strong victory in place of our own 
weakness. When this visitor asked Jacob his name, you see, it it wasn't like, hey, we better be introduced. We've been fighting for three hours. No, he was asking him about his soul identity. Who are you? The meaning of the name Jacob literally was liar, deceiver, manipulator. And Jacob was acknowledging what he was, what his soul character was when he gave his name and then was given this new name, a very familiar and important Bible word occurring for the first time in this passage. You will be Israel, the father of Israel, a name that means the nation of God, the people God commands by his might. Israel in some translations means God prevails or God overcomes. And giving him this name, you see, indicates a character transformation. You've been the name, you've been named as the man who did everything by his own wits and his own strength and his own plots. You're going to be the man who prevails because God prevails through you and in you. And Jacob left that place. It says, calling it Peniel, I have seen the face of God. Well, I don't imply that you and I have necessarily had anybody attack us in the night. And yet I think that there are some who have had this kind of dramatic encounter. You've prayed, you've sought the Lord, you've felt like you came to an end of your own thinking, your own schemes, and things are no better, they're actually worse, your life is falling apart, you don't seem to have a place to turn, you're between a rock and a hard place. What do I do now? Maybe God has thrown you down and, in a manner of speaking, dislocated your miserable pride. And it's time for you to give up your self-reliance and plead for God's redemption of grace. I think I probably speak to somebody who has to know there's a time when you stop wrestling with God and start clinging to him. And you discover he's not your enemy after all. Yes, he has pursued you. Yes, he seems to have pinned you down. But he's done it in order to do you good. John Calvin has a very telling passage about this particular instance in his commentary on Genesis. He said this, Although we may have sensed God's presence as being harsh and grievous as we pray, even to the disjointing of our members... Calvin said it is better for children of God to be mutilated in our bodies if we need to be than for us to withdraw from the presence of God without seeing his face and knowing his blessing. I would say to you there's a direct line of connection between this strange Old Testament incident, and it is strange, and what Jesus did as the Son of God and our Savior in Gethsemane and on Calvary. Didn't he? What was he doing in Gethsemane but wrestling with God his Father? Father, isn't there some other way? There must be another way. And there wasn't. Jesus wrestled with his Father's will, and then he was on that cross, naked and bloody, taking on him the penalty of all of us, taking it, in agony and dying. 
Have you found yourself clinging to him who wrestled with the wrath of God and had to temporarily lose? Here we see in this passage that Israel's lame leg was like a mark of God's grace afterwards. It marked him, I don't know for how long he limped, but a dislocated hip is no joke. Jacob left that fight hardly able to stand up, marked by the grace of God, but he was reborn. The proud man, the scheming man, the man who lived by his wits had died there in that wrestling match. And he limped away, a new creature. Now his name was God Overcomes, not I'm a thief. There are swaggering power brokers in this world, people who criticize Christian faith. They are like unrepentant Jacobs who look at us and they judge quick Christians to be some kind of weaklings or cripples, and maybe they even notice that we seem to be limping. And they say, look at those folks. How stupid can you be but to be a Christian? But we discover that God's own strength is being perfected in our weakness and in our limp. And I ask you to know this as I close. When you wrestle with God in prayer or in time of crisis in your life, you better know this. In the end, He will win. You won't. He will win. But Jacob's Savior and my Savior is ready to share the victory that is inevitably His with you even as you lose and even as you walk away wounded. So the question is, what will it take in your life for a stake to be driven through that almighty pride and self-sufficiency of yours that says, I can make it, I can do it, and stop wrestling against God and begin clinging to him begging him for his blessing, he will give it, I assure you, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Father, today someone is probably in this kind of a crisis. Maybe it doesn't look exactly the same. They don't have a murderous brother. They don't have camels and sheep and goats and four wives, but nevertheless, They're in a place of crisis with you. And maybe they feel that you're against them. You're their adversary. I pray, O God, that in overcoming that, you would put to death in them that pride, that assurance that they can do it by themselves. They can win somehow every time they need to lose this time. They need to be reduced to clinging to you and saying, I am the liar. I am the schemer. Will you bless me? I pray, O God, that you take hold of that one today and do your renewing, saving work in them. For Jesus' sake, amen.